0: It sounds like you've, you've acknowledged that you, know, you need to do the second job thing because you were working in a place that paid slightly less than a bigger place like a, a bank or a telco or a consultancy or something like that. But what you got was the culture and you needed that as well so, and it has a, that's a benefit. Today I want to talk about going off the grid. Joost Backer is an environmentalist, designer, gardener and anti-waste entrepreneur. When it comes to building sustainable homes, he really goes the extra mile. In fact, he recently constructed a property called the Future Food System. It's a self-sustaining, zero-waste building in the heart of Melbourne CBD. It shows us how our homes can not only provide a roof over our heads, but also produce food and generate the energy that we need. Tell me a little bit about, um, I'm particularly interested in what you've described as this this sort of closed loop system um, where you're able to effectively generate energy, generate food from your home. Tell me a little bit about how that works.
1: To give you an example, future food system, the footprint is 87 square metres. So it's like, I think it's one quarter of the average Australian house. We've got over 450 types of plants growing there. We've got Um, fish, uh, different types of species of fish, yabbies, snails, crickets. You know, we've got chickens. It could easily grow more than enough food for a family of five. And one of the systems that I use is called a biodigester. And every single person on earth produces about, I think it's about um, a kilo of organic waste a day. It's a bit bit more, 1.2 on average. In the Western world, it's 1.4. In the third world, it's about 900 grams to a kilo of organic waste. So that's cardboard, what goes down the toilet, um, you know, your clippings, a kilo converts to an hour of methane. So we, we have the potential today right now to harvest between seven and eight billion hours of energy every single day that we already have. So we're using something that we already generate. That's gas that we could use for hot water, for cooking, for electricity, running generators, You know, there's potential there that is um, unimaginable. But then what we do with that waste material that we have in our homes, by decentralizing it and dealing with it in our homes, we can actually um, create gas where we live, but we convert that material into a really safe and natural fertilizer. So we're turning something that smells and is problematic into something that becomes a really valuable fertilizer. It's a bit like cow manure. So it's that kind of technology adoption has, again, a huge um, uh, potential to, to generate so much energy. You know, the house that I'm in, this house is only, I can actually show you, it's a straw bale house. And you can see there on the roof of solar panels. Yep. And that when I built this in 2006, there was 60, we were the 64,800 and something house in Australia with solar 3 million today.
0: Wow. I think people are, you know, are becoming so much more savvy, not only is it the right thing to do, but increasingly it is becoming, you know, far more achievable from a financial perspective. Can you talk me through, perhaps give some advice to people who, um, you know, have an existing dwelling, so they're not building from scratch and they want to put some of those key retrofits in? What are some of the most affordable and effective things that people can add to their homes to reduce um, that waste and that energy consumption?
1: Number one thing to do would be to change to check your hot water service because it's it's by far the largest uh, consumer of energy for people. So if you've got an electric or even gas hot water service, change it to a heat pump. Uh, In Victoria, at the moment, it pretty much you almost get it paid for. There's a two thousand seven hundred dollar rebate on heat pumps. So if the heat pump costs three and a half thousand dollars, you'll get that money back so quickly. It's you know it's that's probably one of the best investments because it's the most hungry. Um, item in your whole house and then you could also even consider changing a heat pump to a slightly larger one and using that hydronic hot water to heat your house rather than any other you know uh, might be electrical gas that would be number one number two is get a system for your organic waste um there's so many systems worm farms Biodigesters, there's so many different things on the market. You know, that's that's a no-brainer. You can go into Bunnings and buy four or five different brands of worm farms and they all work. You can just get a bathtub and do that, you know. The the styrofoam boxes, if you don't want to spend any money, like you know, a great approach for a family of five, you can get away with five styrofoam boxes and you just have fill one one week and then the next one, and then after five weeks, you go back to that first one. The mistake that people make is they keep adding. Too much new, fresh, organic material on top of the worms. They need time to break it down. So, giving them a rest for four weeks, you'll open the lid up and you'll notice that all the worms have eaten, you know, everything and turned it into this incredible, rich fertilizer um, that can then be used for growing your own food. So, get get some plants growing. Get some wicking beds if you haven't got room. If it's an apartment, grow uh, do some sprouted grains. If you don't want to do that, do micro herbs. Just start growing something. Once you start growing something and you've got some plants growing, that's a very transitional thing in your life. Uh, I think that once you start growing, it could be a pot of parsley. You start to think about, do I need to water it? Is it going to rain? What's the weather like? Is it hot? So f- for many people, it's the first time to actually start thinking about the weather other than going for a run or, because once you start growing something, you've become more connected to the outdoor environment. And, just on, on the apartments. So in the early 90s, I lived in Holland for a while and my cousin was selling grow lights. And the grow lights were being sold to people that were growing marijuana in their roofs. You know, like it, 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 it was unbelievable. I'd go into people's roofs and, you know, my cousin would sell these over like 350 euros. You know, the euro had just come in and, and I'm thinking, wow, you know. And in a bedroom size... I was just blown away. I saw marijuana plants that, that looked so healthy, no access to natural sunlight. These people were growing them with worm castings and had all sorts. And um, that's when I realized anyone that thinks that we can't grow food where we live hasn't experienced this and seen the, the <laughs> huge volume. But then going further, you know, I was the first person in the world to use LED grow lights on my greenhouse in 2009. And that was so expensive. But, of course, they were great because they didn't use a lot of energy. I now have LED grow lights that are appealing for us. Those ones weren't appealing for humans to to look at, but these new ones are. And the grow lights could be, you know, they could be on the ground floors of car parks. We could be growing the most incredible food anywhere. That, that, that idea that we don't, we can't grow food. You could have snails in an apartment. You can have crickets. You can have algae. We've got here... Um, um, algae growing. It's like it, you can do it anywhere.
0: Oh wow! <laughs> is that in the kitchen?
1: Yeah, yeah. so can you, you know, that's descri- obviously- Can you
0: can you describe what this is? Because obviously, this is a podcast. People
1: can't see. Uh, what yeah, yeah. At. <laughs> yeah. So this is algae, which is spirulina, and it's um. I'll see if I can. This is the most nutrient dense plant on earth, and it's been oh, around. Wow obviously we're growing it for two reasons i'm growing it because uh, we're making our own fish food out of waste so all of the fish food at the house we're making out of our organic waste okay. and um to get the right complexity and nutrient density we realized that we needed algae so we thought well let's start growing algae so but we've also done lots of food and dishes with it lots of people take it as a supplement because it's really uh, yeah, it's really nutrient dense. So if you're lacking in zinc or in iron or those like um, spirulina, are really high in all those trace elements as well. And and so yeah, again, going back, if you're in a apartment, you, there's no reason why you can't grow micro herbs or have algae growing or have snails growing or have crickets or fish. You know, everyone already has fish, but like they just have them as an ornamental thing. Well, yeah, and the beauty, it's all it's like just mimicking nature, like those fish feed the plants the plants are so healthy and nourishing because of the fish and you know so it's just it's mimicking nature there's nothing really doesn't you know i'm not doing anything that is um revolutionary really like every house produces a condensate from their hot water service that just goes down the drain at the moment whereas we harvest it and use it to grow mushrooms and when you turn the fan on in the shower the steam goes into the mushroom you know so we're growing mushrooms the mushrooms are growing on waste like i'm growing mushrooms at the moment on a pair of old denim jeans that were broken you know so again that circular economy so yeah there's there's so much we can do it's such an exciting idea
0: absolutely you uh you have definitely inspired me i think i'm going to start my vegetable garden today
1: (laughs) Um, there's a great company called Biofilter, b-i-o-f-i-l-t-a they sell an incredible wicking bed And um, it's made from chip packets. And it's really cool. 75% recycled chip packets here in Melbourne, 100% Australian design, Australian made. And um, they are brilliant because it means you in summer you don't have to water them. You only water them once every three weeks. And the the soil actually wicks up the water. So the soil never dries out. And the beauty is, you know, most of the ideas, you just save money. You don't have to be rich to do this. Some of the best zero waste advocates have got, you know, done it with, it you just spend less. You know, buy in bulk, buy a 10 kilo bag of rice. Don't buy, you know, um, roll your oats from scratch, buy a 10 kilo bag of groats, get an oat roller. I mean, often it's just about going back to basics and making th- food from scratch. If you want to avoid waste, grow stuff, make stuff. And um, it's, it's actually much more satisfying.
0: Now I'm going to speak to Amy Stanton. She's only in her mid-twenties, but man, has she achieved a lot. After becoming a beauty school dropout, she did a complete 180 and started a plumbing apprenticeship. Since then, she's cracked the property market and now she runs an off-grid tiny home business called Tiny Stays. She's realistic about going off the grid, especially if you're doing it on a budget. Amy Stanton, plumber, extraordinaire and also a participant on House Rules. You've been on Survivor uh, and you are building tiny homes. Your business is called Tiny Stays. Uh, Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me.
2: Oh, thank you for having me. That was such a lovely intro. I I just want you to follow me around everywhere and intro me like that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
0: uh, it's all good for the self-esteem isn't it <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's it how you been oh, I'm not too bad now we
0: spoke a long time ago when I was working on smashed avocado and at that time you were uh, living at home with your folks and working on your first tiny home what's happened since then
2: a lot has changed since then um we've expanded our business we saw there was a huge demand for it so we keep smashing out the tiny homes now I've moved out of home which my parents are pretty happy with and into a beautiful new home that obviously we got renovated on house rules which we're absolutely stoked about and um yeah things have changed it's all, all going uphill it's good
0: Amazing. You are so busy. Um I I do keep up with uh what you're up to and it's like you never stop, I don't know uh when you sleep. But let's go back to the beginning of your story and and tell me a little bit about uh what inspired you to become a plumber in your early 20s. Yeah, so my
2: I had a bit of a rough childhood, not not at home or anything. Had a beautiful family, amazing friends, but I was just constantly in that headspace of I don't know what to do. I'm not good at anything. And I just constantly thought of myself as just stupid. And I just thought, oh, you know, I just can't do anything. And it, it became a stage after I got expelled from school because I was constantly trying to impress people, you know, trying to fit in with the crowd. And then I remember my careers teacher asked me, like, oh, Amy, what what do you want to do when you're older? What do you want to do? And I always had this thing in my head that I wanted to be the Red Wiggle, That obviously didn't work out for me, but from then, I like I just do beauty therapy, was horrible at it, could not paint nails, and my dad, he's a builder, and I remember, funny story actually, back in the day, we used to go camping, and then after we used to go to the service station, and I always used to be like, oh, dad, can I get a Magnum? And he's like, no, you can't, that's a plumber's ice cream. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, only plumbers can afford Magnums. So I feel like it's been in the back of my head since then. Oh, maybe I should be a plumber, but I do love it. I do love working hands-on, and it has got me to where I am today with the tiny houses. So from there, I started an apprenticeship, and um, I always said in my head, I'm going to get an apprenticeship under my belt and then go out and chase my dreams, which I'm doing right now.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I think it's you know it's still unfortunately an unconventional path um, for women. But what you've showed me is that when you've got a trade. Um, you've got this extraordinary ability to um, to have a real impact in the property market. Tell me, did you think about um, off grid and sustainable living when you were working in plumbing, or how did that come about? I
2: thought a little bit about it, seeing how everything works, you know, behind closed doors in plant rooms, all water and all things like that. But it really didn't. It wasn't. I feel like it wasn't a huge thing back in the day, and now it's started to become like popular which is great it's awesome that it's becoming that but more people are becoming aware of what's actually happening around them how things are working so from plumbing when me and Ben were deciding we wanted to get in the tiny house business we thought well what what can we do to make a change that instead of getting up in the morning and doing something for us we're helping the environment and helping the rest of the world as well so it kind of gets us out and about and doing things
0: Absolutely. And I guess the, the model for um, Tiny Stays is is quite interesting. Can you tell me a little bit about how it works?
2: So basically Tiny Stays, we, me and my brother Ben, we build tiny houses which are on trailers. We create them so they're completely off grid. And one of the reasons is that is obviously to re- reduce our carbon footprint, but also so we can place them in the most beautiful picturesque places around Victoria put them up on a hill in your favourite winery location and people can get away from emails, get away from, you know, their bosses and just escape technology and just really embrace and immerse themselves in nature and see what it's like to actually completely live off grid. And do you contact
0: people, do you kind of find a piece of land and say we want to put a tiny home there and then I understand you borrow their land? Is that how it works?
2: we rent land from farmers or landowners so if there's someone out there that has an amazing piece of land in a beautiful location and they're not doing anything with it and they get to make a bit of money so we pay them monthly rent to rent their land off and because it's completely off grid it's not like we have to build things there we literally rock up it takes probably a week for us to you know dig drainage in and things like that and then um yeah, we just pay them a monthly rent and say if one day it came to, they don't want us there or we want to move locations, we can just pack up and leave. It's not that simple, but that's basically how it works. Tell me a
0: little bit about the process of building a tiny house for an off-grid environment.
2: Yeah, well, it's it's funny because a lot of people look at the concept of a tiny house and think they're going to be really cheap it's a lot more complex than that. Building a tiny house is, it is just like building a house on a trailer, but when it gets a bit complicated is, well, how are we going to make them completely off grid? And that's probably the most expensive part about it. So in our tiny houses that make them off grid, we have a compostable toilet. And that's basically, it would be a perfect kind of toilet to have if you were, you had a little holiday rental or something like that, or you had a house in the bush, or even if you wanted to try it at home. And it's waterless, so without going into too much detail, because I'm a plumber, don't mind talking about poo. But basically, it goes, you you do your business in it, and then there's wood chips, and the guests grab their wood chips, put put it on top of the business, and the pee actually drains out and then just soaks out through the land. So they're separated, which causes it not to smell anymore. And then once that pit type thing is done, you just change it over, sit it out in the sun, wait for it to compost. And it's a constant process of just changing the pits over, composting, putting on your garden, changing them back. That's a toilet. And it can be a little bit confronting for some guests if you haven't really been in an environment of a drop toilet, it does kind of look like one, but um as I said, it doesn't smell unless you tip water down it. And that's the toilet side of things. With water, we get water tanks and just they just come from rainwater, basically. So everything in there is just fed off rainwater, and we have a solar power system running with batteries. So if there's no sun out, that's probably one of the other challenges with being off grid if there's no sun out and we have back-to-back guests sometimes you are going to lose power if you know we've had people bring their rice cookers and stuff before and I think getting across and saying this isn't just your normal home where you can turn on lights turn off lights you actually have to think about the process and how you're getting the power which is an adventure in itself. Tell me a little bit about the costs.
0: So you've just touched there on, you know, saying that it can be more expensive than people think it is. What sort of costs should people be prepared for?
2: Well, there's a few ways to go about it. We don't build them to sell, but from, you know, being in the business and knowing about it, people can build them to lock up, which is a stage where the outside's done and they say you can just kind of kit it out yourself, which Generally, people look at something like that and it might cost 30 30 grand and they think, oh, that's, that's really cheap. I'll get that and just kit out the inside. But the cost comes with the solar system, which might be up to, you know, 20 grand on top of that and then kitting out the inside as well. So if you were to go to a tiny house builder, they generally range from probably 80 grand to 150 grand, depending how big they are which is obviously 10 million times cheaper than a house in Sydney. Um, But it's a great concept. The only issue I would have personally about buying a tiny house and living in it is unlike real houses, they don't go up in value. They decline in value. So it's not an investment. It would more be a change of lifestyle, a way of life. That's really
0: interesting that they decline in value I mean I guess the the main thing in terms of the value and the investment is going to be the land
2: Mm, so definitely you know
0: for people who want to live in a tiny house it's it's securing the land what do you look for and I know you rent um land from people to put your tiny houses on but if you were to be buying a piece of land for a permanent tiny home what do you look for
2: the long run is to buy land ourselves but council regulations, you need a house on the land to have the tiny house there. That That's in lots of councils. It ranges from state to state, place to place, but generally you need another dwelling on the property to put a tiny house on it for it to be legal. Um, but we look for complete seclusion and it's all about what you personally like, but for our tiny houses, we want complete seclusion. We want to give our guests a feeling that they're In the middle of nowhere but they're close they can drive 10 minutes down the road and get to the local winery or something like that so we always say 30 acres plus easy access and one of the main things we look for is sun to make the whole tiny house work we have a tiny house in um red hill victoria beautiful location but there is lots of pine trees there and in the winter the solar panels cannot. They don't get that much sun, so we sometimes have to back it up with a generator and things like that. So if you're going completely off-grid, it's all these kind of little things you have to take take in and be like, okay, I can't position it with lots of trees around in the middle of a forest if I want to go off-grid.
0: Um, tell me a little bit about... Um the mistakes that you've seen people make. So, um, you know, I'm sure um, you've you've done your research and you, you've seen, you know, worst case scenarios. What what are the mistakes that people make and how can people avoid them?
2: One of the main ones would be people outsource money to buy a tiny house, but they actually haven't tried. They haven't tried to stay in one. We always, we get people come to us all the time, like, oh, we want to live in a tiny house. I'm like, that's, that's awesome. Come test it out, live with your missus or you know, spend a few days in each other's hair and see. okay, maybe like, yeah, this is what we want. We want the minimalist lifestyle. We want to reduce our carbon footprint. Or they might think, you know what, this is a bit small for us. Maybe we could have it as a holiday house, but there's so many different tiny houses and lots of people, if they're building them to live in, I would highly suggest getting a loft bed to make more room. There's so many good designs out there, but number one, test it out first and then also get your land right, either doing a long-term rental agreement with someone who's got land or even start searching for your own land. So you have that investment and you buy the tiny house and you buy the land or and you've still got that land in case in the future you decide, you know what? I don't want to live in a tiny house anymore, and the land's constantly going up in value. So, there's a lot of things to consider, but if I was going to live in one, that would be what I would be looking at personally.
0: You're obviously, I mean, we've spoken mostly about your business today, but you're super switched on when it comes to property. You're only in your, your 20s, you've got an investment, you've got the place you're living in, you've got your tiny homes. What's the future hold for you in terms of property?
2: Well, it's, you know, I, it always changes for me. I think I want to do one thing and then I'm like, oh, maybe I won't. I was thinking a lot in, I've got the investment property and I was thinking of more because I'm really good. I know a lot about Airbnbs now. I'm like, oh, maybe I could buy, Airbnb, you know, buy in Rosebud, or wherever it is, buy, renovate it and then Airbnb it out and kind of live off a business model of that way. But in further thought, like I love renovating houses and I love Airbnb and people coming and all that kind of thing. But I think for me, me and Ben are going to mostly work together as a team to buy properties in the business of tiny stays. And we might buy 20, 30 acres with an old crappy house on it. We do the house up, um, rent that out as an Airbnb and put two tiny houses on there and then move on to the next one and keep going like that. So we're not only building up our business, but we're building up our property portfolio and also giving us money for the future as well.
0: That's the plan. <laughs> super, super, super impressive. I love the plan. And and knowing you you will pull this off
2: because yeah. you are it's my mood
0: you, <laughs> you say you're gonna do something and, and you do it. Um what just to wrap up, what advice can you give to people who are just starting out on their journey? Um, people who just want to get into the market in the first place? What's the best tip that you can offer?
2: My advice would be as much as people are saying at the moment. But you buy now, buy now, or sell now, sell now. Don't rush into it. You want to make sure you're making the right decision on the house. Get other people's advice who have done it before. You know, your book's a perfect way to start, obviously. And I think see what you really do want. If you are not a renovator or you're not that savvy with the tools, maybe it's not the best idea to buy an old crappy house. Maybe start off with a t- townhouse or start off, you know, in a housing estate or if you want to get into that, yeah, definitely go down that road. But I know a lot of people that, you know, they they might buy a fixer-upper and be like, yes, this is going to be awesome. And then a weekend they're like, oh, crap, like this is a lot harder than expected. I think you've got to feed off your passions and whatever you like to do and how you like to do it, make sure you're incorporating that into buying a property if you, you want to invest in the future or you just generally want a house to live in but then I think within saying that it's so good to learn something new and you know if you want to try something you want to learn something new give it a crack buy as long as the house isn't falling to pieces buy a house and you'll see you learn so many new skills and the best feeling in the world is if you're building a tiny house you're renovating a house or anything in life in general stepping back and looking at it and going, wow, look what I created, look what I made. It's just, it's just a great feeling. Amy is a star, but she's also realistic.
0: A tiny home might not be as affordable as you think. For starters, you have to have somewhere to put it. And in many locations around Australia, a tiny home is only permitted when there's already another dwelling on the land. I love Amy's suggestion to try before you buy. Can you and a partner or a friend or whoever you're living with tolerate each other in a small space? But if you are up for it, it could be a great option if you can find the land. Or you could do what Amy does and set up a long-term rental agreement with a landowner or buy your own land. Next time, I want to talk about the concept of rent vesting. That's buying where you can afford, renting it out to tenants who cover the mortgage, and then renting where you want to live. There are lots of creative ways to do this and I'll speak to a couple of people who've taken really different approaches. The information in this podcast is provided for entertainment and educational purposes only. It is general in nature and does not apply specifically to your circumstances. If you're considering purchasing property, it's always best to speak to a licensed financial professional before making any decisions related to your goals.